Austin, would you come up and open the scriptures to us? Wow. Uh, good morning. It is uh, it's really sweet to be here, to be with you all this morning. Uh, I didn't really prepare any introductory thoughts, and I was thinking there in my chair, uh, what do I say as, uh, as I stand here before you? And after eight months of, of being away, and the words that came to me is that uh, the Lord is good. He is good. He's been really good to us, Clements. Uh, it's been uh, a very wonderful um, church that we've uh, been welcomed into uh, there in Utah and Layton, a wonderful uh, head pastor and his family, uh, really sweet body that actually uh, reminds me and is very much like this body here. So he's been uh, very good to us. Um, we've missed you all. So we've much looked forward to, to getting to see all your faces this morning. Uh, it's really sweet to, to see you now and to be with you and to be able to bring the word. Um, we're just full of thanksgiving. Uh, for God's provision to us. Um, in so many ways, this church and, and this experience felt tailor-made uh, to myself and our family. Um, and also now, as, as the Lord's brought us to Utah, that's just been a wonderful fit. So uh, God is good. And so we're, we're glad to give Him thanks and, and report on His faithfulness to the Clements. So glad to be here with you this morning. If you would, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10 this morning, and uh, just for context, Jesus is in the middle of his ministry. Uh, he's grown in popularity at this point, so he's well known. He's uh, been healing folks. Uh, people have been coming to him for healing, to hear his teaching as well. Uh, and in this passage this morning, one man in particular comes with uh, a very pressing, important question to ask the Lord Jesus. And so, if you would, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Beginning then in verse 17, running through verse 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, 
Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning's passage is quite weighty. In fact, it's about as weighty as they come because here we are dealing with the question of eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question of this passage, and Jesus will answer it, and each one of us will have to decide. Is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to give up everything and follow Jesus? To help frame this question, I want you to imagine, especially our young people in this room, I want you to imagine that a choice was put before you. Two options. You could either, tomorrow, you could go on an all-expense-paid trip for a week, and you could go anywhere in the world and do whatever you wanted. You could live to your heart's desire, enjoy all the things you've ever wanted to enjoy. You could go and do that right now. The other option is to work diligently, work hard and long for a full year. And then, at the end of that year, you would have a full lifetime of an all-expense-paid trip. You could go at that point anywhere and do all you wanted for the rest of your life, never working another day. Which would you rather have? Right? Of course, I hope the choice is obvious, but this question is meant to be a parallel to the question of eternity. Are you living for this life or the next? Is it all about the here and now? Or are you also considering the life to come? Right? Are you doing whatever it takes and paying the price no matter how high to take hold of eternal life? Here's the big idea this morning. Eternal life is worth whatever it takes to acquire it. So follow Jesus no matter the cost. This morning we'll work our way through this passage by asking three questions. First, What does eternal life require? Secondly, how may that requirement be met? And then thirdly, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? So first then, what does eternal life require? And our story begins with a wealthy man running up to Jesus and kneeling before him and asking him a question which we should all be concerned with. And not just a little interested, but this question should occupy the whole of our beings. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Can you think of a more important question than this one? And we know that Jesus thinks it's important because He engages the question. He doesn't say, well, you know, your ethic, doing right and wrong, it shouldn't be tied to any reward. You should just do good for goodness' sake. No, Jesus answers The question, because there's nothing more important. And sadly, one of the great dangers and snares of our day is apathy 
and distraction and all-around busyness. We're busy with important things and we're busy with trivial things. Uh, I didn't have time to, to track it down, but uh, I thought of screw tape. Uh, screw tape is, if you've read C.S. Lewis and some of his works, the screw tape letters, uh, screw tape is the senior demon who gives counsel to his nephew, who's a junior demon. And he uh, counsels him on how to get this man, his, his patient, to not follow after Christ. Right? He's trying to keep him from Christ. And again, I didn't track down a passage, but this is what I imagine this, this junior demon would hear from his uncle Screwtape. Screwtape saying, do whatever you can take to distract him of thinking of the life to come. Use the pressures of his job and make it all-consuming. And when he's not working, make sure he's busy every evening with commitments and other distractions. Use social media, Netflix, YouTube, hobbies, sports, the stock market, whatever it takes. If you can distract him from thinking about eternity, then we have one. The enemy of your soul will do whatever it takes to distract you and to keep you from asking this question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so, Ascension, brothers and sisters, I have prayed for you. And I've prayed for uh, adult children in particular who are currently wandering and straying. I've prayed for many by name. Young children, uh, I've prayed for you as well that this question would be your question and that what Jesus says here would have all your attention and that you would do whatever it takes to obtain eternal life. Do not be disinterested this morning in what Jesus has to say. So what does He say then? And here we come to verse 18. And Jesus' answer is a bit indirect. He starts by questioning how the man addressed Him. Good teacher, the man said. And Jesus, He takes hold of this and He says, Why do you call Me good? No one is good except God alone. And Jesus' point here isn't to deny that He is in fact God. He makes that quite clear throughout the Gospels. But it's to challenge the man's concept of goodness. If He's willing to call someone good whom He thinks is merely a man then his view of goodness is far too shallow. It's too easy. Jesus calls him to consider that true goodness and righteousness can only be ascribed to God and His standard alone. His standard of righteousness. And so in verse 19, that's where Jesus goes next to the law of God. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And here it almost seems as if Jesus is setting up the man. He's playing his game. The man says, what must I do? And so Jesus points him to what God has said man must do. If you're going to obtain eternal life through obedience and being good enough, then here's the standard, the Ten Commandments. That's a summary of all of God's law, and it's the standard of perfect righteousness. And actually, Jesus only lists the uh, second table of the law, right? How we treat one another. This is 
uh, 6 through 10. And these are the easier ones to measure. They're a bit more obvious. Do not murder. Okay, I know what murder is and I haven't done it. Check. Do not commit adultery. Okay, yeah. Check. Haven't committed adultery and so on. And this is basically the man's response. In verse 20, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And here, I don't think we should necessarily uh, see the man as being proud or arrogant. He's sincerely seeking to know whether he has done enough to inherit eternal life. And this is sort of a scary thing because we can be sincere and we can have a sincere desire for eternal life, but we can be sincerely mistaken about how we obtain it. And we can miss the most basic ingredient of true righteousness. This, la- this man lacks what is most basic. And this is what Jesus aims to show him in verse 21. And Jesus, we continue, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. Now I'll just pause here. This is a, a passing remark, but it's quite incredible. Jesus is about to say something that he knows will turn the man away. But he says it anyways because he knows it's what this man needs to hear. Sometimes we need to be willing to say very difficult things to other people. Sometimes love confronts and says the hard thing. In fact, love compels us. Looking at him, he loved him, the text says. And so this is what he says. He says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And here in his walking away, the true heart of the man is revealed. It's laid bare. Elsewhere, Jesus says these words, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What is lacking in this man is a sincere and true love for God. Jesus first recited certain of the Ten Commandments, but they can be summarized. And we find one such summary in Deuteronomy 6. This is the essence of obedience. Hear this. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the essence of true righteousness and obedience. And really, this is the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. But what is this man's God? It's his wealth, it's his possessions. He was an idolater at heart, worshiping another god. And so he couldn't choose Christ over his possessions because he loved his possessions too much. It's that simple. Ultimately, what's required here is not that each one of us sell everything we have and liquidate our possessions and and give everything to the poor. But what Jesus is getting at here is the man's heart. What Jesus requires is that our love for God and for Him transcend our love of self. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to please Him and to follow Him? 
Jesus says elsewhere, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. A love that is willing to follow Christ, even unto death, if that's what God requires of us. It's this kind of love that God asks of us, willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. This kind of love asks, Lord, what must I do to please you? It's a sincere desire. Because as the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Again, one of the scary things about this passage is that this man did not realize that he didn't truly love God. He was self-deceived. He believed he was living as God required when he wasn't at all. And so we have to ask ourselves regularly, could that be true of me? Is that true of any of us right now? God tells us in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. You and I outwardly, we can walk according to God's ways. We can be nice to our fellow man. We can live lives that appear very much to be Christian. We may sincerely believe that we're on track for eternal life when all the time we may be lacking the most important thing, and that is a true, sincere love for God. So let us examine ourselves, brothers and sisters. Is following Christ the first and last desire of our hearts? Because that is what life requires, eternal life. God has offered Himself to us in the Gospel and He asks that we do the same in return, offering all that we are back unto Him. So that is what eternal life requires. Everything, our hearts, our minds, our souls, everything that we can give unto God. And so now, following Mark's account, we want to ask the second question, which is, how may this requirement be met? How are we supposed to meet this requirement. Now before Jesus gives us hope, he names a great obstacle to eternal life. And this is also a warning. In verse 23, we read, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth is not always a good thing, Jesus says. And we see that the disciples here, they are shocked by this statement. Why is that? It's because wealth in the Old Testament, not always, but so often wealth was a sign of God's clear favor. You just think of Abraham or Job, right? the most righteous man in all of the land, or King David. These men were all swimming in wealth. So the disciples are astonished. This seems backwards. But Jesus only doubles down, and this time with a little more humor. He says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so we're encouraged to use our imaginations here, right? Envision a camel and a bunch of men behind it trying to shove it through the eye of a needle. Right? This kind of stuff only happens in cartoons. 
I was thinking of the modern day parallel might be a bunch of pushers, right? Trying to get people onto the, the train in Japan. And the train's full of people and you see them trying to shove one more in. It's like trying to shove an elephant into that train, right? Once it's that full. It's crazy. It's an even tighter squeeze, right? For a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's a tighter squeeze than that. And so to be a bit frank, these words should make us a little bit uncomfortable. They should give us a fair bit of pause and honest reflection. And that's because if we're willing to see clearly and to judge rightly, most of us have a considerable amount of wealth. And by that, I don't just mean the bottom line in our bank accounts, but wealth is ultimately about security. And it's about ability, being able to do the things that we'd like to do in this life. Now, the Bible is clear. Wealth itself is not bad. Let's not make the mistake of saying wealth is bad. But what does wealth so often do? Very often. It tempts us to be content with what we can obtain in this life. To lay hold of as much comfort and pleasure as we possibly can. And so we become distracted. We become satisfied. We lose our appetite for heaven. Right? I don't need to think about heaven when I'm regularly eating steak dinners and I've got a warm bed and I'm skiing knee-deep powder. I did get a ski and some powder uh, this past winter, so that was quite nice. Right? We've got it made. I don't need to think about the life to come. So Jesus then comes along and says, follow me. And by the way, go and sell all that you have, all that stuff you love so much. And we say, well, I'm not sure I want to. Life's pretty good. Right? In the parable of the sower, some of the seed falls among the thorns. And Jesus says in Matthew 13, As for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The rich young ruler was deceived because he thought he was living for God when in fact what sat on the throne of his heart and what he loved most was not God, but it was his own earthly comfort and security. Now again, in Verse 26, the disciples are exceedingly astonished. They thought surely wealth was a sign of God's favor. And so they ask, if not the rich, then who can be saved? To which Jesus replies in verse 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. With man it is impossible. In a word, the teaching of Scripture about our condition is that we are blind to God's majesty. We are deaf to His Word. We are dead in our sin. We're asleep. And in the words of the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? With man, it's impossible that we might save ourselves, that we might conjure up in ourselves a true love for God more than we love ourselves, more than we love this world. But then Jesus also speaks this good news, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. 
Jesus is able to make the blind man see, John 9. He's able to open the ears of the deaf, Mark 7. He can raise the dead to life, John 11. And He is able to remove the heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh as Ezekiel prophesied. God can make the valley of dry bones stand up and He can cover them in flesh and He can breathe His Spirit into them so that the dead might live and have eternal life. If there's anyone here in this room this morning who does not yet truly know God, God can give them a new heart. God can give you a new heart if you think you are lacking that heart even in this very hour. So may hope fill all of our hearts from this passage here in Mark. If you feel like you might be the rich young ruler who is grasping the things of this world too tightly, God can grant you the power to loosen your grip and to let go. This is what He did for each one of us when we first believed, when He, when we, when he called us to Himself. Right? He gave us new hearts, new desires, And He continues to work that power within us that we might live for Him rather than ourselves. So if you have a heart that's captured by something, by something in this world that you've held dear and is keeping you from giving yourself more fully to God, simply pray that God might once again help you return to your first love and give you a heart for Christ above all else. This passage is also an encouragement for us to continue praying for others who don't yet know and love the Lord Jesus. A person may seem like a million miles from the truth, way far off, and God can suddenly call them to Himself and give them new life whenever He pleases and however He pleases. Earlier this year, I uh, met a man and he shared his testimony with me. He grew up Catholic and Uh, For most of his life, he had very little interest in Christ until one day he was reading, I think, uh, sort of uh, willing the the universe, all these good things to to come to you. He was reading some guy who was teaching uh, the power of thought and the power of the mind to do that. Well, this guy referenced the Bible and he said, you know, uh, is that really how I ought to take that passage? And so he Googles the passage, finds a blogger, and this guy is a Christian blogger writing on this text. And he's explaining the gospel, how Jesus came to die for us, and uh, the meaning of Jesus' death. And he told me, he said out loud as he was reading it, that's why Jesus had to die. Just, you know, this guy seemed to be a million miles from Christ from the outside, right? And in that moment, God called him to himself, opened his eyes, and gave him new life. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And that is how the requirement may be reached by the grace of God working through the preaching, the sharing, the reading of the Gospel. And by the power of His Spirit to soften our hearts and show us our need of God's forgiveness in Christ. To lead us to a place of true faith and repentance and to a true love of God. Right, that goes beyond mere rule following and checking the box to an actual longing and desire to know God and to live for Him. So, that's how the, the righteous 
requirement may be met and eternal life obtained. So we've looked at the requirement. We've considered how it may be reached. And next, Jesus goes on to speak of the greatness of the reward. Is it really worth it? And here's what I want us to get under this point. If you follow Christ, you cannot lose. There's only gain. And whatever you give up for the sake of following Him, it will be worth it. He will return it to you a hundredfold. This is Jesus' point in the last few verses as He responds now to Peter. Peter and his disciples, they've done what the rich man was not willing to do. They have left everything. Family and jobs, their reputations, they've left it all to follow Jesus. So Peter says, what about us? Verse 28, see, we have left everything and followed you. And perhaps he's seeking reassurance after those frightful words of Jesus. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus reassures the disciples and He speaks this promise. A promise which He also speaks to us today. Picking up in verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I must say this has over the past year or so become one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And that's because it captures this amazing truth that if you follow Christ... Yes, there may be suffering. There may still be trial and tribulation in this life. And Jesus may ask you to give up everything you have. But in the end, you can only ever come out ahead. Far, far ahead. And this was, in fact, the story of the apostles. They actually did leave everything. And they suffered in all sorts of ways. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul outlines their sufferings. Beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. And the list goes on. But what does Paul then add? He says that outwardly their lives might have looked sorrowful, but in truth they were always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. And this is the story of countless Christians across history, and across the globe. Uh, some time ago, I re- read about a Pakistani Muslim woman who lived in Pakistan, and before becoming a Christian, she was a very distinguished member of society. She was extremely wealthy. Uh, she was from a very prominent family. She was well-connected to top government officials. Uh, and she knew that if she became a Christian, all of that was on the line. She would lose all of that. Well, somehow she came across a Bible and she began reading the Bible. And she came to believe that Jesus was, in fact, who he claims to be. And she felt compelled to publicly confess her faith and to face whatever consequences would come her way. And indeed, she received death threats and most of her family shunned her. 
Some people attempted to burn down her home, and eventually she fled to America. Unlike the rich man, she did give everything to follow Christ. But in coming to Christ, she gained so much more. There in Pakistan, she gained true Christian friendship with the missionaries who were there and other Muslims who had come to Christ. She came to have so much more as she came to the States and gained so many families and friends as she traveled and told her story and came to be integrated into the body of Christ here. She gained a global family. So she became a part of God's people. She received a hundredfold houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and childrens and lands with persecutions, right? And of course, outweighing all of these things even, she gained eternal life. There's nothing more valuable than that, right? Think for a moment about all that is meant by eternal life. Eternal life is not merely just simply life that goes on forever, but it's a life with a kind of happiness and joy and wonder that words cannot describe. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So what do you love in this life? What do you cherish and enjoy so much about this life? Whatever it is, it is only a shadow, a tiny reflection of the splendor and the joy of heaven. August has often asked us, will our house be in heaven? Will my toys be in heaven? And what I tell him is, no, I don't think they will. But if you like our house and if you like our toys, then heaven will have things like that. Only it will be so much better. The joys of this life pale in comparison to what is to come. I think that's the point of the descriptions in the book of Revelation. We read of a city that's made of pure gold and of walls made of their foundations just being these huge gems and the gates being made of massive pearls. I don't know, maybe those are meant to be taken literally, but I think that's missing the point. I think however heaven is, it's far more wonderful and glorious than we could possibly imagine it to be. Now, if you're thinking, no, Austin, it's not the, it's not the stuff, it's not uh, the entertainment that I love in this life, it's the people. Well, here too, whatever goodness we have known in this life from our relationships, that too will only be multiplied in the life to come because heaven is not just a place full of people, but it's full of perfect people. Right? The people you so enjoy, think about enjoying them even more. As Jonathan Edwards titled one of his sermons, Heaven is a World of Love. There's no meanness There's no bitterness. There's no envy or rivalry. There's not even annoyance or frustration. There's only love. And at the center of that love stands one whose love surpasses knowledge. Paul says in Ephesians 3, our notion of God's love always falls short of how great and wonderful it actually is. Its breadth and length and height and depth cannot be grasped. I remember when Ellen and I first met and uh, I fell in love with her and then we got married and it seemed as if there was nothing sweeter in life than the love we had for one another. 
And no doubt something similar can be said of the rich friendships we have in this life. It's, it's rich, it's fun, it's fulfilling, it's sweet to enjoy life together. That's what brings us so much joy. Well, that love, that joy, whatever measure you, in, you've experienced here in this life, that is only just a small sliver of what the life to come will have. It's a shadow of the love of our triune God. And in heaven, sin won't be any hindrance to our tasting the full sweetness of that love. In John 17, Jesus prayed for us, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The glory and love of Christ will be ours to enjoy unhindered in heaven. And this is a prize worth our giving everything for. That's the point. And Jesus says it this way in verse 31. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. So do not seek to be first place in this life and forfeit the life to come, but invest everything in Jesus. In the world of finance... It's common advice to diversify your investments so that if one tanks or doesn't perform well, then you've got the others. Well, here's the advice of Scripture. Do not diversify. Invest everything in Jesus. Figure out how to give every last penny, every last ounce of your strength and your time and your heart to following Him. And your reward will be great in heaven. It is the best return on your investment that you will get in this life. A hundredfold. And in the life to come. Eternal life. So here's the central encouragement this morning, people of God. Follow Jesus. Follow Him with everything. Find out what it means to give Him every hour of every day. Whatever you're pursuing in this life, pursue it for His sake. Do not make money to make money, young people. Do not pursue a good job simply to have comfort and ease in life. But pursue that same job perhaps in the service of Christ. Asking what it means and looks like to do all things for His sake, for His glory. If there's any sin... Or any earthly possession keeping you from giving yourself fully to the Lord. Give it up. Run from your sin. Go to war with it. Do whatever it takes. Ask God how you can be a witness to the Gospel. And ask Him to make you bold with the opportunities that He gives to you to share the good news. He does give us opportunities. And pray for more opportunities. Start your day following Christ being in His Word and in prayer. Draw near to Him throughout the day and take hold of His promise to draw near to you. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. At the end of the day, give yourself to God once more. Confess sin. Draw near to Him. Experience communion with Him before you end the day. Treasure God's love for you each and every day. And always endeavor to be able to say with Paul, forgetting what lies behind 
and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Right? Because that prize is eternal life in the presence of your Savior. May the Lord help us to live not for this life, but to do whatever it takes to inherit eternal life and life in His presence forevermore. Let's pray together that God might make it so. Heavenly Father, Lord, You are a God of mercy and grace. Lord, You are a God of kindness. Lord, the storehouses of heaven are open. Lord, and we are ready to receive. God, would You pour out the riches of Your love and kindness upon us. We pray for soft hearts. Soften our hearts, Lord. Give us more of a desire to know You and to commune with You, to walk with You. Lord, we pray for those in our life who need to take hold of Jesus' words, who need to be challenged, Lord, about their love for this world. God, awaken those who are sleeping. Lord, You know the names uh, that come to mind even as we pray right now. God, would You pour out Your mercy and Your grace. Lord, thank You that every good gift and every perfect gift is from Your throne. Lord, thank You that You love us with an unending love. Lord, help us to receive and to walk in the fullness of that love. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.